It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Ooh, some easy breezy jazz. This jazz, Sean, you're a bigger music guy than uh, I am. No, this is uh, the Doobie, well, the, the original is the Doobie Bro. I would not classify as jazz. Well, and, More and, like Yacht Rock. As an homage to Jonathan Papelbon, this is the Doobie Brothers. Uh, all right, so this is the Bradford Show from the... Live from the Ford Fenway Clubhouse Studios, I'm here with Sean McAdam, author of The Franchise, A Curated History of the Boston Red Sox. And Sean, it is now time for my favorite game, which is Power Ranking. All right. And I love, and I'm not just saying this because you're here, uh, I love how you organize this book. It's, it's not just a history, but it's broken up into some really, really good like, topics uh, in terms of what you can debate. Uh, so you have, for instance, you have history, Fenway Park, Yaki era, Henry era, media, Ned Martin, Peter Gammons, Jerry Remy, which, by the way, when Joe brought that up on the broadcast the other night, oh, man, you should have just said, Joe, you, uh, you were number four. We, he, could, we could only do three. Yeah, he, got, he got left on the editing room floor. Well, you I also, you, respect he also brought it up right in the middle of a guy running on the field, which I... Yeah, I, I, I wanted that guy to have a lot of I heard open that. field running that to a, give me more time. That was a great line. I, I can neither confirm nor deny that I was behind <laughs> his motivation to jump onto the field. It's weird. It said the franchise tattooed on his back. All right. Uh, then you have the rivalry. Yankees dominate... Uh, uh, 1920 through 1977, 1978, 2003. You have icons, Williams, Yastrzemski, Ortiz, Aces, Clemens, Martinez, just missed, which is a great one, 67, 75, 86. The golden age, which, by the way, is all within. We're living in it right yeah, now, I, Rob. I know. It's, it's basically like Maybe not this April, year. May, June. No. Uh, no I, it's, I, have, I have told people at yeah. signings, uh, I, I have begun my little spiel in bookstores by <laughs> assuring them that there is actually absolutely no 2022 content in this book. So Red Sox fans desperately well, run mean, away from this season. It, Fear not, there is no mention. The, the book was completed well in advance of the start. Of it kind of it's kind of important that they don't do anything important this year. Yeah. So. Yeah, it was, I, I don't want to make it seem outdated already. So, and then uh, transformative figures: Dick O'Connell, Theo Epstein, Frank Kona. So, so you get the idea. These are broken up into different categories, which obviously leads to my favorite exercise, um, besides earthing, which is uh, power ranking. Earthing and power ranking, hand in hand. Uh, the first one I want to start is is chapter is part four: the icons. Okay, it's one of my favorite things to say. Who is the most impactful player in Boston Red Sox history? So I brought this up before. And so the three guys that you focus on, I'm not saying this is how what you said, but you called them icons. Yep. Uh, Williams, Estremski, Ortiz. So under that, guys, under that sort of umbrella, which I just threw out there, which would you say? No question it's Ortiz. Yep. Which is not, you know, let, let, let's parse our words carefully here. That isn't to say that, Ortiz is necessarily the greatest Red Sox player of all time, but you use the qualifier impactful. This guy played on three world championships, uh, neither Williams nor Yastrzemski, each of whom are hugely important in telling the Red Sox story, 
even played on one, uh, you know, and that sort of defines Red Sox history from not only Ted's debut in 39, but going back to 1919 all the way up to 2004. Uh, Yaz in particular is, I don't want to use the phrase tragic figure, but in many ways he represents that frustration. He, he ushered in modern Red Sox history with the 67 team, but he is associated with so many of those close calls, not just 67, but 72, finishing a half game behind a Detroit in the strike-shortened season because of the, uh, uh, an inequitable schedule that saw them play one fewer game than the Tigers, 74 when they're ahead in September and end up finishing fourth, 75 when they lose a great World Series to the Cincinnati Reds and Yastrzemski makes the last out, 78, the playoff game with the Yankees. Again, Yastrzemski making the last out. Oh, so for as great as he was, he was also sort of the, the, the face of the futility that the franchise experienced for those almost 20 years from 67, uh, you know, from the mid-60s into uh, the early 80s when he retired in 83. And Williams, of course, through his long storied career in which you could rightfully call him the greatest hitter, not just in Red Sox history, but in the game's history, was only uh, part of one World Series and wasn't very healthy when that happened. So that's that's the separator for Ortiz. And with Ortiz, too, it's not only that they won World Series, it's that they literally, like, flat out don't win the World Series without him. Right. Right, I right. mean that's. Yeah. I mean to go back to 2013, right. 680 or whatever. It was. Yeah, you have you have the entire team hitting a hundred and him hitting six hundred. Yeah. It's it's crazy. Well, and and it, you know I I'd like to frame it this way, Rob, that that Ortiz not only is the most impactful guy and they don't win the three without him. All of that is true, but I think overriding that is that he changed the narrative and the expectations for Red Sox fans. Up until 2004, Red Sox fans were properly conditioned to expect the worst at the biggest time, whether it was, you know, the the disappointments of 67, 75, 78, 86, all of that. Uh, Red Sox fans thought when they were ahead, they were going to lose. When they were coming from behind, they were not going to be able to do it. (laughs) They were conditioned to expect to lose. Ortiz, over time, didn't happen right away, But starting in 2004, he made people believe, hey, we might actually win this because they had David Ortiz. And and no greater compliment could be put on Ortiz's career other than to say he changed the mindset and the expectations going from expecting the worst no matter what to reasonably expecting them to win because of the presence of one guy. Well, one person I know that either has already bought your book or will buy multiple copies of your book if he hasn't is Jeff from Watertown. Jeff, what's going on? Hey, Sean, it is so great to hear your voice again. It's so great to hear you on uh, on WEI again. And uh, nice to be back. Nice to talk to you, Jeff. Thank you. I can't wait. I, I can't wait to get it. And um, I, you know, it's an interesting point that you make because because uh, I was thinking about you know the heyday of the old baseball show. That was all about the first times, you know, we, we talked, you know, we were there in 03 and then 04, uh, you know, and then again in 07. And, you know, it, it, it was a whole different world then. I mean, I used to yep. say that, you know, I, you it know sure the was. Were, four hours of baseball talk, Jeff. <laughs> it was. 
and you know, but people were miserable, <laughs> you know, like, you know, and then all of a sudden they weren't anymore. And now, you know, now, you know, the, the whole culture around here has changed, you know, sports, you know, all four sports have been successful. And it's just so, it's so different. You know, young people around here today just don't have that, that died in the wool pessimism that, you know, <laughs> that existed for so long. So, so that's, that's a great thing. I, I didn't hear you at the beginning, so I don't know if you talked about this, but I'm just curious about your assessment of the Heim Bloom era and, and, um, uh, this shift. I can remember years ago talking to you in the old baseball show about wanting Billy Bean to come here and show what he could do with some money behind him. Uh, and you, you never did that. But, but what do you think of the, the high and bloom experiments here? Well, it's obviously a mixed bag so far, Jeff, and uh, with a very disappointing on-field product for 2022, kind of balanced out with a surprisingly successful 2021 and a, and a pretty long postseason run. I, I think uh, ultimately that Bloom's legacy is going to be determined this offseason. What happens with Bogart's endeavors and how does he rebuild on the fly from an underachieving team this year to attempt to put a contender on the field next year? So I, I'm, I'm not dodging the question. I just right. think a lot of the a lot of the history is going to be made in the next you know three or four months. How he handles. Absolutely trying to retain Bogarts, trying to extend Devers. If that fails, what does he get for Devers? Does he try to trade Devers? Who does he replace Bogarts with if Bogarts doesn't stay? And what does he do to, as I said, sort of remake that starting rotation on the fly and try to um, try to not only uh, put a contender on the field but likely save his job, which I think he'll have to do next season. Right. I don't know if you remember, but I, I was a big Dave Dombrowski fan before he came here. And the thing I point to this season right now, going to the offseason, reminds me of 97 when Dave Dombrowski went to the Marlins. They had some good talent in the farm system. They had a lot of money to spend. And in one offseason, he built a World Series championship team. And, you know, and then he had dismantled the year after. But but I just, you know, I, you know, Bloom is in one of these unique positions. I mean, he's in a great place right now. Any general manager, manager I think, would, would kill to come in here with, you know, assuming their stocks are going to spend the money, which I think they are, and the farm system as it is right now. I think he's in a great position. I just, I just don't know if he has the, the, the vision. I know you know. I know he focuses on next season and the year after and down the road. I want to know if he if he understands the value of the season when it's happening. Yeah, I, I, I think he hasn't shown that. Right. I, yeah, I think Jeff. Thanks a, for the call. There, there's an urgency that's going to that that's going to arrive this winter, and and Jeff makes a good point, Rob. Where you know Heim has talked about sustainability, about the the. Uh, the yeah, they're for delicate they're, balance. They're, they're all for one. Right. The the delicate balancing act of rebuilding the system, uh, preparing to have that pipeline of players continually feed your major league roster, but crucially also have success at the big league level, use your resources of a big market team, and put a contender on the field. He did that a year ago while continuing to improve the system. system is now top 10, 11, depending on your ranking, somewhere in the top third of baseball, and that's positive but you can't neglect the major league product on the field at the same time. No, because you can't. You can say it's top ten, but we have to see if these guys can play. Because we've, if you know, Sean, we've had plenty of guys ranked in top ten of of you know top five guys, and they're like, oh, I mean, J Jackie Bradley's a good player, right? Right, a good player. But is did he become the superstar? A lot of people thought he was going to yep. be Henry no. Owens. Henry, you know oh, that. Oh. 
He was <laughs> he-, he was heading up the next wave of Blake Swihart. You know, right, right. Yeah. Um, you know, so you're right. There, there's a there's a I mean, we've seen encouraging things from Bayo yesterday. Certainly, yeah. you look at that and say five or six years at least. But it's got to be. Uh, it, you know, it, it's it obviously is going to require yeah. more than beating the Texas Rangers, uh, who are out of contention uh, in a September game, to sustain that. Yeah, I don't think that putting in the bumper stickers, we beat the Rangers in early September. Probably not. No. Um, can you hang? Absolutely. All right, awesome. We're going to keep talking about the franchise, curated history of the Boston Red Sox with the author, Sean McAdam, right here. Uh, I do want to ask, uh, we, we had talked about sort of the iconic players and and sort of will there not be another iconic player? Will the Red Sox actually hold on to some of these guys to become iconic players? And also, you know, you talk about in the cat in the book transformative figures, some some pretty powerful names. Dick O'Connell. A lot of younger people might not know who he is, but certainly people know who Theo Epstein is, who uh, Terry Francona is. So you know, and can can Heim Bloom learn anything from this? Because like you said, he's going to have the money. Sure, but can he learn? There is definitely things to be learned from these guys that you have in this book. 617-779-7937 if you have any questions for Sean. This is the Bradfoe Show. Be back after this. Get into all the Major League Baseball action with Season 2 of Play Loud, exclusively on the MLB YouTube channel. Forget front row seats. We're taking you into the game on the field and in the dugout during some of the hottest matchups of the season. Follow along and be part of the fun alongside some of the league's biggest stars as we mic them up and get the cameras rolling during some of the hottest matchups of the season. That is out of the ballpark! Catch real-time reactions from Juan Soto in the field or listen in on the hilarious conversation between Eduardo Escobar and Francisco Lindor in the dugout. Tune in for live reactions from players across the league with unprecedented access. Play Loud is your exclusive look into the fun of the game. You never know what you're going to see or hear. Play Loud. It's baseball like you've never watched before. Tune in for new episodes of Play Loud, only on the MLB YouTube channel. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. All right, welcome back to the Bradford Show. I'm Rob Bradford the Ford Fenway Clubhouse Studios. I'm here with Sean McAdam, author of the franchise. I'm just going to call it best-selling book. Best-selling book. Sure. It is in my house. There you go. It is it's best-selling book. Uh, curated history of the Boston Red Sox. As I said, it's I love it's it's such a good read because it. I can't say this enough. Too many books. Too many of the the books about you know we look at the history. People I think get overwhelmed with the history books, right? Yeah, and well, it's a, it's a franchise that's 125 years yes. old. It's kind of where do you start? But you managed to do this in a way where it is so digestible and, and leads to the, the type, type of conversations that we've been having. You know, we talked about the iconic players, and I want to sort of morph into you have transformative figures here in Dick O'Connell, Theo Epstein, and Terry Francona. Now, I'm going to push Dick O'Connell aside just for a second. Sorry, Dick O'Connell. Uh, but people obviously, I think even the youngest generation here have some familiarity with Theo Epstein and Terry Francona. The question I have for you, Sean, is what are what are is the a, a huge lesson that can be learned from each about performing this job in Boston maybe there's multiple lessons but i think it like they had hits and misses obviously sure. they had flaws but at the same time each of them there's a reason why they're in part 8 transformative figures of your book is because 
they found the secret sauce that worked at a very important time in a very difficult market. So what are some of the things each of those guys brought? Yeah, well, with Theo, I think he understood that, uh, you know, the ebb and flow of a team, and, and Heimblum is finding this out now, that going to within two games of a World Series in October does not guarantee you success the following year. We've seen the ups and downs that some franchises have made. So Theo understood the balance of a number of things. First of all, he was smart enough uh, at the beginning of the analytic, analytics revolution to incorporate the data, but also have Bill LaJoy, uh, you know, kind of a crusty 68-year-old. Right. And I remember Theo's line about Bill LaJoy, the late Bill LaJoy, who obviously had a great run as a GM of the Tigers. Right. 80, that t- 84 the Tigers. 84 Tigers together. And, and I remember, I always remember what, I, what he said about him. And, and I sort of try to use this when talking about people that you want either working with you or for you or anytime, which is he had a strong desire to kick ass. Like, that's what he said about him. Yep. All right, there you go. And, and, and you know, more to the point, he was a set of, uh, he was kind of the traditional scout whose evaluation skills Theo valued and trusted. So on one hand, you had Carmine, and on the other hand, you had Bill LaJoy, and Theo was able to synthesize both of those so that at the beginning of this analytics revolution and Moneyball and all of that stuff, he had the, the, uh, the, the newest data and projections and you also had a traditional grizzled baseball guy who could go out and say, yeah, this guy can play and that guy can't. And Theo trusted that evaluation set of skills. So th- that's one thing Theo did. He also understood that you had to have that pipeline constantly coming. You look at how different the 4 team was mm-hmm. that, let's face it, a lot of that roster was inherited from the Dan Duquette era. Uh, you know, Theo, for all his uh, success, did not bring them Pedro Martinez. He did not bring them Manny Ramirez. He did not bring them Derek Lowe or Jason Baratak or any of those. He did add guys who were critically important to 04. But then look at how different that team is in 07, where it's starting to be the thing that Theo valued most, the, you know, the, the scouting and development machine that was his ultimate dream, and to see... Pedroia and Papelbon and Lester and uh, and Ellsbury start mm-hmm. to make their mark in 07. And I think Theo also understood that each team had its own. I mean, and, and Francona talked about this too. Each team had an identity. So in 04, it was uh, the idiots, the cowboy up, the, the, the we're not going to let Boston overwhelm us, led by Kevin Millar. Mm-hmm. And three years later, it was no... We're now we're we've been here long enough that we're developing guys we drafted and now they're getting to the big leagues and now they're going to contribute. And we know that Terry Francona has said that 08 team may have been the most talented one he had, even though they stopped short of reaching the World Series, got about as close as you could against David Price in game seven of the ALCS, but didn't get over that hump. And then you start looking at the teams that followed the championship teams, the 2013 team is is kind of bits and pieces of guys like Gomes and Victorino and 
people that were brought in on short-term deals to buy time for the next wave that Charrington had been nurturing. And then 2018 is a wagon that steamrolls everybody from April all the way through the end of October. So all four of those championship teams have different identities, and I think Theo recognized, even though he was only the, you know, he was only here for two of those. The first two, he understood that this was constantly evolving, and you can't be fat and happy even if you have won two World Series. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data from Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware. Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. Now, as you're talking, it's sort of interesting because... With all those championship teams, you have the foundation. And, and you know, whether it's Sher- what Sherrington did in 2013, what Theo did in 2007 and in 04 is, yeah, they found the complementary guys, right? But you need the foundation guys. Yep. And that's what makes this task so daunting for Heimblom, right? Because the foundation guys or the guys who were supposed to be the foundation guys, they're either up with their contracts or they're pretty close to it. Right. And so you got to go out and find the right guys and, and, and Heimblum, I think tried to do that to an extent with Trevor story, but that's a big part of this, right? Yep. Of, I, I, I've, of he, like Theo, Kurt Schilling foundation guy, right? He went out and got him. He saw that. Um, uh, who else am I thinking of? For I mean, for a shorter period of time, Keith Folk, obviously. Oh, Keith for, Folk, yeah, you know, absolutely. He, uh, I mean, he was never the same after October of, tw- of 2004 because of what he did in 2004. I mean, he got abused that month to, to win them the World Series and was never the same after, but he was looked upon as, okay, we need the guy who's going to be able to come into Yankee Stadium in the ninth inning with a one-run lead and slam the door and we need the guy to do it repeatedly in the month of October against the best teams in the game, and he did it, but at a cost. All right, so we're going to take a quick break. Sean McAdam, author of the franchise, a curated history of the Boston Red Sox. We're going to talk a little bit more about this subject because we haven't got – I asked you about Theo and Tito, and I do think that there's a correlation between Tito and Alex Cora about lessons to be learned. And I obviously Alex Cora was there and he's learned some, a lot of lessons from Terry Francona. But as you said before, not every team is the same. Certainly generations are different. You can't treat everybody the exact same way, which is what makes Tito Francona's run currently so impressive because he has evolved while keeping his foundation. But you know, we're going to talk all about that, but first we got to track. All right, welcome back to the Bradford Show from the Ford Fenway Clubhouse Studios. I'm Rob Bradford, along with Sean McAdam. Now, this is jazz. This is jazz. Yes. 
Thank you, Ethan. Excellent job. Everyone knows I love a good uh, jazz flute in, in a Sunday morning, much like Ron Burgundy. Uh, so we've been talking a lot with Sean McAdam, who's the author of the franchise, a curated history of the Boston Red Sox, which sort of morphed into the here and the now. But I just thought of this, Sean. You know, I feel like this is very important, a very important book for people to get. So anybody who tweets proof that they have ordered your book and, and attaches the Bradfoe Show Twitter account, we will take one of those people and give them a baseball is a boring t-shirt. Right, Coop? There you go. Coop says, sure. All right? So prove that you bought the book. Tweet at the Bradfoe Show Twitter account. Then you're in the mix for a, a, Brad, a baseball is a boring t-shirt, which, by the way, is uh, on Nesson right now. Is that uh, correct? Yes, on Nesson. It's being worn all over the place. Because you know what, Sean? Baseball isn't boring. I have heard that, Rob. On the record, off the record. I am co-signing that. Uh, Sometimes, yes. (laughs) But but it is, is, uh, you know, the Timmy Trumpets thing. Like, this is yay for baseball. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, it's fun. It should be. Look, if Buck Showalter is on board with it, you know, (laughs) that that says something. And I'm I'm being kind of facetious. But, um, you know, he's kind of looked upon as a very stodgy, traditional guy he's got you know it's 107 in 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 baltimore when he was managing and he had the jacket zipped up all the way uh you know he was the one that took great offense to ortiz smashing the phone when he was there i mean he's not exactly um you know uh uh, cutting edge in that sense but the fact that actually i think bucks changed a little bit for the good and i think his embrace of the whole uh Edwin Diaz and mm-hmm. the narco walk uh, entrance music. And I, I, I shudder to think 10 years ago what Buck Showalter would have done had the Orioles brought a trumpet player onto the field to play a song for Armando Benitez oh. or whoever would the closer was of the Orioles. And, and if, it was, if it was David Ortiz, forget about it. Yeah. But, but it's a good segue as we head into the Red Sox pregame show. It's a good segue into what we were talking about. In your book, you, talk, you, you take a deep dive into Theo Epstein and who we just talked about, but also Terry Francona. And this is a guy, and I asked you before, what can we learn about something, that, how he managed in Boston or what Alex Cora can learn? But a big part of this, Sean, is what you touched on with Theo and what you just touched on with Buck, which is this, you have to evolve. Yep. Like You have to be able to evolve. You have to understand that this player isn't like that player. This market isn't like that market. And you're, you know Terry Francona as good as anybody in the game. And I would imagine you could see that in him, and this is what makes him so good, right? Exactly. And, and, and you know, it seems like such a simple directive or a simple philosophy, but Francona realized you had to let the players be themselves, express themselves, and that that environment would get the best performance out of him. And it didn't, you know, while there were, I, I think Tito is one of those guys in the club, you know, I only have two rules, show up on time and play hard. And I think most managers kind of subscribe to that. And again, it sounds overly sim- simplistic. Well, there's got to be more to it than that. 
But when that's your guiding philosophy, and when you have such disparate personalities like Pedro and Ortiz and Manny and Millar and Damon and all those guys in 04, if you start trying to micromanage, hey, you know, you don't have your, your jersey or your uniform top on while you're taking BP, you know, go back in there. That's not how we do things. He wasn't going to concern himself with the small stuff. It was about being on time, playing hard, and, and, you know, and thinking of the team. And he got all of those guys, as different and as individual as they may have been, pulling on the same rope, and it ended up with a what do you see? What do you see? Um, and Alex Cora is, is his own guy. Alex yep. Cora is more of a, I'm going out in the clubhouse, uh, chopping it up with the players. And, and really, like, we go back to, you know, John Farrell had his strengths, and but then it, it came a point in time where it felt like okay you needed that maybe that manager who was going to get out in the clubhouse a little bit more so Cora's a little bit different in both than both those guys but what is the thing that you see in Cora that you say oh you know what? that's from Terry Francona well I think he has that overriding you know he he's got a rookie first baseman today making his major league debut sunning himself in right field three hours before game time, and Alex is in the pregame media session joking about it in a, in a good way, not making fun of him, not saying, like, what's up with this kid? He just <laughs> got here. He realizes that there are, you know, guys are have their own routines. They have their own individual quirks or habits or whatever it is that has made them successful. We know that, that Casas did this a lot in the minor leagues. Seem to work for him. Yep. Just because he's on the big stage here in the major league environment does not mean we're going to wag a finger at him when he tries to do that here. So, again, it's that, that overriding philosophy of letting guys express themselves, be themselves, be who they are, but at, you know, at, at 110 or 710, be ready and remember what the goal is here. And it's not about you know having your own brand. or do it, it, It's about pulling together with the other now 27 guys to try to win that day. All right, Sean, Sean McAdam, last thing uh, from your book, The Franchise, is what is the thing when you're doing this project that you're like, ooh, hmm, that, that sort of hit home a little bit more than I thought, or I didn't, not, I, maybe I didn't realize it was like that. I mean, there's always, I mean, this is an exhaustive process pro, in, in, in to anybody who does a book, like it's it's such an accomplishment, and in to so to take and I heard you on the broadcast about how you you know this is an exhausting thing, right? And your yeah. only good day is when you get the box of books, right. right? But what is the thing that you like when you're doing it? You say, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it. it I, I've been asked that a lot, Rob. It's some signs oh, and things. No, 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 no. Don't don't <laughs> don't sell yourself short. You're you're asking a good question. Um, but it also means I'm prepared for the answer because it's come up before. And the, the short answer is the impact Dick O'Connell had on this franchise, which I don't That's think. why I didn't want to talk about him. I knew he was coming <laughs> so up. You, you held that to the yeah, side exactly. as a brilliant interviewer yeah. would do. Yes. Um, no, the, the impact that Dick O'Connell had on this franchise uh, for a period of, a, you know, of 15 years or so. And when we think of... You know, the Red Sox franchise turning from black and white to color in 1967. And that season, the impossible dream season, saving the franchise. Tom Yockey was unsure 
whether staying in Fenway Park, whether staying in an urban environment was sustainable. Uh, you know, it was getting more expensive. You had the, the suburbs were becoming more the destination point. He thought about moving out to the suburbs. But 67 revitalized the franchise. It got people into baseball again instead of having 450,000 people a year, as they did often in the mid-60s. They were now drawing over a million. People watched the games on TV. They listened on radio. And that turned the franchise around. And and O'Connell's uh, big contributions were twofold. One, he pulled the franchise kicking and screaming into the 20th century because we know that the Red Sox were the last team to integrate in 1959, that they had too many people in management, in the manager's office, who had racist tendencies, who were only interested in keeping the old boy network alive. And Dick O'Connell said, essentially, screw that. We're going to get the best players we can, whether they be Latino or African-American. Look at that 67 team with Reggie Smith, George Scott, Joe Foy, uh, Jose Tartable, John Wyatt, Elston Howard. (coughs) That would have been unthinkable five, six years earlier, but O'Connell changed the thinking where he was going to start looking at all avenues of talent to bring players into the pipeline and then look at the incredible number of players who came up on his watch from Tony Canigliaro to Rico Petroselli to Reggie Smith to Jim Lomborg into the 70s and Carlton Fisk and Fred Lynn and Jim Rice and Rick Burleson. He had two pennant winners in 67 and 75. He came as close as you could in 72, finishing a half game out. And although he was fired at the end of 77, that team in 78 on the field was his, just as in many respects Dan Duquette could claim to have uh, some ownership of what happened in 2003 and 2004. So he developed, he instituted that scouting and development machine that Theo Epstein dreamed of building decades later. All right, great stuff. Sean, thanks so much for coming by. Everybody, everybody by the franchise of Curated History, the Boston Red Sox. I want to thank everybody uh, for making this happen. Joe Weil, Ethan, Will Fleming, who's going to be coming. I'm just thanking Will Fleming because he's going to be on the pregame show. But most importantly, Sean McAdam, once again, the franchise of Curated History, the Boston Red Sox. Catch this interview on the Bradford Show podcast page. I'm Rod Bradford. I'm also going to be doing the pregame. You're going to want to stick around. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.